for the record. Uh, a couple things, that song that you just led us in talks about the birds of the air flying. And I was thinking, as soon as I heard that, it reminded me of this fishing trip, which I'll talk a little bit about, uh, that we had this last week. And we were floating down the river, and there was a loud in the sky, and a bird, I thought it might have been a falcon. Do you know if it was a falcon? Call it a falcon. It slammed into another bird, which I presume is a sparrow, and that sparrow fell out of the sky and hit the water and was just dead on in I mean, it was dead before it hit the water, and it was just floating next to one of the boats. This happened in the Black Canyon of the Gunnison National Park. And I was thinking about that. As soon as that happened, I naturally went to my head, went to the verse that says, are, two, are not two sparrows, this is Jesus talking in Matthew 10, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid, you are worth more than many sparrows. And we went on a few of these, raft, uh, these, these rapids that was pretty bony. And it's easy, I think, sometimes if the wave catches it right to flip over. And there's a few guys on the trip that get pretty nervous about flipping over in a boat in the Black Canyon. And I think it's exciting. And I say, we got to not be too worried about it because our days are numbered and the hairs on our head are counted. So God's got this in control. Be smart, but don't fear. Uh, anyway, maybe that's just a sick way to look at rafting down the river. But that's the way I look at it. It's very, very lack of concern because I feel like God's got it taken care of. Um, this afternoon, Brent and I, along with my mom and dad and our kids, uh, are going to go on a trip back east for four weeks. Uh, so we'll have an extended vacation. We'll be gone for about four weeks. Uh, miss four Sundays, and we've got our Sundays covered. Uh, and we're doing it in celebration of my dad's 70th birthday, which just happened this May. And we're going to fly, or we're going to drive out there, and then we have some family members that are going to fly uh, out there to meet us. We're going to go to a Red Sox-Yankees game, and we're going to go to uh, Cooperstown, New York, and, and see uh, the Hall of Fame there. And we're going to go uh, to this museum in Kentucky, the Noah's Ark, and, and we're going to go to Vermont and get some maple syrup and, and just do some really fun family things. But what I'm looking forward to the most uh, out of that trip is going into D.C. And anybody that's been there, from what I've heard, I've never been there, but I've heard it's pretty dirty. Um, and, uh, but I, I want to go see some of the statues, and I want to see some of the, uh, the memorials and, and do kind of a, uh, a history lesson for myself as well as the kids. And I want to go to some of these historic towns that are located where uh, much of our country was uh, fought over at the very beginning. And this last week, we were in the Black Canyon going back to that, and I spent four nights with my older boys, and uh, we fished and we uh, hiked and <clears throat> we cooked uh, fish over a legal campfire up the Black Canyon, which I didn't start the fire. It was uh, started by a 70-year-old, 8-year-old man who took us in there and he was grandfathered in, so I didn't feel guilty about it. Uh, riparian water rights. Uh, he, had, he had grandfather rights to start a fire there, so we cooked fish. And at one point during the, the whole interaction, uh, his name's Tex. Tex looked over to me and he says, "Hey, how, how do your boys get along so well? I've been around. I've been around families. I've taken scouts down here. Thousands of. I've taken over a thousand kids down here, and mostly young boys because he's a baseball coach and he was a Boy Scout leader. 
And he says, how, how do you guys do that? What's your secret? And I said, well, you know, my oldest is 16 and my youngest is 8, and they've never, or 7, 7? They've never shared a room, or they've never not shared a room. They've never had their own room. They've always been in the same room, so they've been forced to get along. And so I was thinking about that as I'm, and all this has a point, I'm not just rambling on. Uh, I was thinking about that conversation, and on Wednesday uh, of, of this last week, uh, my legs were just sore trying to keep up with them going up and down the rocks and across the river and up river further and the higher up the river you go the better the fishing is and we were trying to catch the salmon flies and and so I decided on Wednesday I was just going to take a, a reprieve and I I grabbed a chair and I grabbed a book and I sat on this chair and I grabbed a cup of coffee and I'd look to my right and at one point I took a break from reading I looked to my right and Titus's poles bent over or fly rods been over and he's got a good old brown on the end of it and I started smiling, thinking, man, what a lucky kid. Uh, what a lucky young man he is. And then I thought, but how much more blessed am I to be able to watch this? And then I looked to my left, and Jonas has got a bent rod. And at the same time, 200 yards upriver, Jonas has got a bent rod. And I'm smiling, going, man, if only Grant had one on. But right when I'm thinking that, I see Grant rushing upriver with a net, and he nets his little brother's fish for him, you know, at the end of this fly rod. And I just thought, I, I feel like the luckiest guy uh, on the face of the planet right now. And the book that I was reading at the time is kind of the important part of that story, really. And it's called The Life of Washington. And it was written by a, a woman named Anna C., the letter C, Reed. And it was published in 1842. Um, and the story is essentially about the the life of our first president who was born in 1732 and died in 1799. And it's a story from the time of his birth and his upbringing and how he ended up becoming the, uh, the, the general of the army that fought against the English to gain independence. And uh, how uh, the story is how they teamed up with France and how he made a really good friend with, with a, a, a man named Lafayette. Um, I mean, and it talks about the story of Benedict Arnold, and so there's so much rich, cool history in here, and all of the, the stories about Benedict Arnold, and the stories about Lafayette, and, this, and the stories about when they went to war, and the certain battles they won, and they, you know, shouldn't have won, of all the stories and all the writings in here, the number one uh, denominator that I saw was that George Washington was such a well-respected man and his character was revered by everyone that knew him. And his, his moral compass seemed to be 100% based on the Almighty God. If you look at the things that he wrote, the things that he said, the things that he did, it all seemed to be based on the creator of the universe and his acknowledgement of the creator of the universe. And now that doesn't get taught in, in schools very often, I understand that, but there's one insert in particular that, to be honest with you, it challenged me, um, it, uh, it convicted me a little bit, and it encouraged me as well to look at someone that they've written hundreds and hundreds and thousands of books about, and this particular excerpt here, says it was the summer of this year that General Washington took measures to suppress the habit of profane swearing which prevailed in the army. 
So I want you to picture these, these men that were fighting a, a war. Oftentimes they had you know, swords on the end of their bayonets and, and they're sometimes hand-to-hand -hand combat and sometimes you know, they haven't eaten anything but a yam and they're, they're without shoes and their clothes are older. They weren't, it's not like it, was, it is now. They were in a different type of war back then. And he was taking measures to suppress the habit of profane swearing which prevailed. The following general order is sufficiently illustrative of his views of that most vulgar and impious practice. Quote, Headquarters, Moore's House, Thursday, July 29, 1779. Quote, Many and pointed orders have been issued against the unmeaning and abominable custom, comma, swearing. Notwithstanding which, with much regret, the general observes that it prevails, if possible, more than ever, his feelings are continually wounded by the oaths and imprecations of the soldiers. Whenever he is in hearing of them, the name of that being, and that being is a capital B, so he's referencing God Almighty in this letter to the officers in the different sections of the army. <coughs> Excuse me. Whenever he is in hearing of them, the name of that being, from whose bountiful goodness we are permitted to enjoy the comforts of life, is incessantly imprecated and profaned in a manner as wanton as it is shocking. For the sake, therefore, of religion, decency, and order, the general hopes and trusts that officers of every rank would use their influence and authority to check a vice which is as unprofitable as it is wicked and shameful. If officers would make it an invariable rule to reprimand, and if that does not do, to punish soldiers for such offenses of this kind, it could not fail of having its intended effect." So here we have the general of an army writing a letter to the officer saying, tell your guys to stop swearing in the name of God because he is providing for us or there's going to be consequences. I mean, it was a that's a different breed of leadership right there that I see here. A 47-year-old man trying to rein the tongues of soldiers. And George Washington is quoted as saying, when you speak of God or His attributes, let it be seriously in reverence. And I thought of that verse when I read that quote in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 3, I believe. Let me find it real quick. 1 Peter chapter 4. It says, if anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very oracles of God. The very words of God. When you're up here speaking, you're speaking the very words of the very oracles of God. So George Washington is quoted as saying, when you speak of God or His attributes, let it be seriously in reverence. This entire book was clear that Washington and the early fathers of our country were completely and faithfully aware of the providence of God. I've like five pages from finishing, and I cheated a little bit this morning. I went back to the, the end of it, some of the quotes that are, are in this book, and it's uh, a lot of just good fatherly advice for anybody, I think. But um, I think... In reading this story, it goes without saying that the men and women 240 years ago were of a different grit than we are today. Would that be fair in saying? That the men and women, I don't just say the men, because when the men went to war, they didn't have women in the war. When the men went to war, the women were stuck at home, and they're having to fend for themselves for food, for fire, and to keep the proverbial wolves away. That's what the women had to do. 
And you look back then and they walked, it was the soldiers, the men that were walking from sometimes battle to battle, they were walking barefoot, they were walking bleeding, they had no food. And I, I read this stuff that was, you know, written in 1842, and the saying to me becomes true that you've heard maybe for our country today is that hard times make strong men and women. Strong men make good times. Good times make weak men. And weak men make hard times. It's this perpetual thing that we're in this culture right now. And if we're blind to it, I'm getting a little political here, but if we're blind to it, we're going to continue to see tougher times that continue to go on. And so when I read stories about Washington in my next book that I'm going to read by this Anna Reed, I kind of like the way she writes, is about Martin Luther. It's going to be about the Reformation. But back to the political side of it, reading this stuff about Washington, can you imagine in the soldiers that day, can you imagine you know, a, a, a soldier from 240 years ago walking into a Starbucks in Grand Junction and ordering a, a, a drink and, and, and he gets on Instagram when he gets home and because he, he's insulted because the barista mispronounced his name or spelled the name wrong and they used the wrong pronoun when handing the drink and the his, her, it, they, them, uh, their drink got messed up, the double shot chocolate latte with organic goat milk. I mean, can you imagine that? It's silly, but I mean, that's the culture we're in today where people get offended because their drink order is wrong. And yet, our... Our foundation was started from men and women of such grit and strength and tenacity that, that that sort of thing sounds silly today, but it happens every minute in America. Not every day, every minute in America somebody is getting offended over something very tiny and small. And when I see where these men and women got their morals, the story of Mary uh, his mother is in there, and it's just fascinating because when I approached her before I went on to become president of the United States, I hadn't seen her in three or four years, and I went into her house in this small little town, and she was keeping herself busy as she always did. There was no idleness in her hands. There was always something going on that was productive in her life. And you see these people that it's written about, and it's fascinating, and I look in Scripture, and I look in these books like this, and I go, man, we are so far, our culture is so far from what God intended when they were focused and completely acknowledged Him as their God. And our country was founded upon that. So, brother, when you talk about Roe v. Wade, and you say the battle's not over, the battle's not over. A lot of prayers were answered that it got overturned 6-3, to three, but now it's just saying, if you live in a state where it's okay to kill, then keep doing it. There's still a battle that is going on for the sanctity of life. And so, yeah, it was a monumentous decision today, but it's going to continue that we need to pray and we need to fight and we need to stand up and acknowledge God in our ways and not be fearful, not be fearful of what other people might think by standing up for what God says. Because Jesus says it in Matthew 10. He says, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. And how many of us kind of keep quiet about who God is, what God has done in our lives, the sacrifice of Jesus. How many of us keep quiet about that for fear of offending someone that has a veil over their eyes? Well, we don't want to talk about that. That's judgmental. 
that's not, when you, when you see these stories, it's just, I, I'm, I'm going to hand it off to my, my boys to read. I want Evelyn to read it. I, I want you guys to understand, I have so many dog-eared pages in here because there's so many rich sermon topics throughout this entire book that I can go right back to Scripture because that's what George Washington did. He acknowledged the Father constantly in his daily walk. So I want to look at this passage in the 16th Psalm. Psalm 16. David writes here, Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. Apart from you I have no good thing. As for the saints who are in the land... They are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take upon, take up their names on my lips. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. More on that later. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life you will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. There's this acknowledgement that David has about God and what he's going to do in his life. He's going to protect him. He's going to keep him. He's going to guide him in his walk. Uh, when it says about the inheritance, he says, the boundary lines in verse 6, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Think about that, that just that concept, and maybe this is totally off of what David meant, but this is what I get. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Who sets the boundary lines? God does. God is laying out this pathway. He says, you, you guideth me beside still waters. He's guiding me down this pathway, and he's setting parameters for us to walk through. And as we walk through them, he calls them pleasant places. And then he says, surely I have a delightful inheritance. So we have this almighty God, which is recognized not by our leaders today. I mean, we have a president, our last president, just mentioned the name God, and it makes big news. Well, our first president, everything he talked about, in fact, when Benjamin Franklin, when they were coming together and they had the Articles of Confederation, I believe they were called, they said, our country, our 13 colonies, we were, we were, we were united in war but I don't think we're going to be united in peace. So let's take three weeks and let's pray about this and seek divine intervention. This is Benjamin Franklin. Let's seek divine intervention so we can be guided on the pathway of which we're going to go as a country in times of peace. And of the, I think it was of the 13 colonies, there was one Rhode Island that opted out, but one of the men in that room argued with Benjamin Franklin about whether or not they should consult God for the next three weeks before they made a decision on what they were disagreeing about. Let's go in prayer. And so a mass majority of the men early on said, hey, we're going to consult God, and what would God have us do? Because He helped us become a country. We certainly need Him to become the leader of our country and the leader of our guiding rights. 
That was, that was the intention of the early fathers. So when he says we have these parameters, our leaders were seeking God for the parameters of God so that they could have a delightful inheritance. They could have a pleasant place. And I think about this inheritance, and naturally I think about an inheritance means you're an heir. And in this passage, you guys have heard me read I don't know how many times, but in Galatians chapter 3, Paul is writing and he's referencing both Jews and Gentiles in this passage. And he says, you are all sons of God through faith. He's not saying, oh, you got some women, you got some men, you got some Jews, you got some Gentiles, you have some free, you have some slave. He's saying, you are all, every one of you are sons of God. That's a gender neutral term, meaning you are children of God. It doesn't matter male or female, you are children of God. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The argument from the Jews was that if you're a Jew, you come from Abraham's seed, therefore you are an inheritor, you are an heir, you are an heir to the promise that God gave to Abraham. And now Paul is saying, no, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, it doesn't matter. You are an inheritor through faith. You were baptized into Christ Jesus. You are an inheritor, an heir to the gracious gift, to the, according to the promise. What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he's no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole state, he is subject to guardians and trustees. But at the end of this passage, he says, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. So in the 16th Psalm, when he says that we have this inheritance, and then he says to the Jews and Gentiles, everybody, basically everybody in the world, that you are going to be an inheritor, you're an heir to the promises that God gave to Abraham. And that word, Inheritor is um, means betting by a betting by apportionment or a possessor. Like, I w let's take a minute or a second or however long it takes and think about the fact that this Almighty God, who creates this bird that attacks this little bird that falls into the water, that's going to eventually maybe feed the fish if the bird doesn't come back, or that you can tie a fly. And you can throw a fly into the water and a fish can hook on the end of it, Mason. And, and you can have a fish on the end of your rod. The God that created those fish created you. It is an amazing God that we serve. It's an amazing God that created us, that knows the number of hairs on our head. He, he knows us in, inside and out. And he says, you are going to be an inheritor, a possessor. Does that make you feel special? <laughs> it, it does for me. I mean, you walk around and you see people that are blinded with the veil and they don't realize the inheritance that is available to them. That they get to keep, they get to have because of what Jesus did, which we're going we're gonna to join together in recognizing and remembering what He did. But they get to become, an, they get to become an, a possessor of those things that God did. That God gives. And I think the, the powerful part for me in reading this, this biography 
was the acknowledgement consistently throughout Washington's life. I mean, when he was when he was a schoolyard kid, when there was a dispute on something, they would say Washington said it was so, and that was the end of debate. He had such a reputation. Was it Psalm fifty-one? What's the psalm that you want read? That you read at the who is who can who can uh, fifteen? I got the numbers. Okay, dyslexic. Sorry, Psalm fifteen. He was the type of man that when you looked at him, you saw the fifteenth psalm. I'm going to read that just since I brought it up, so you're not wondering what I'm referencing here. When he says, "Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill?" He whose walk is blameless and he who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart and has no slander on his tongue, who does his neighbor no wrong and casts no slur on his fellow man, who despises a vile man but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his oath even when it hurts, who lends his money without usury and does not accept a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken." That is a promise from God in the 15th Psalm. Brothers and sisters, I am, an, I am one of the brothers and sisters I'm referencing here. Let's read this passage and live our lives to try and, and, to try and be what God says. Who may dwell in your sanctuary? These are the passages that we look at as young men and that I go, I need to, I need to be more like this. I need to focus on being more like this. And because when we do that, who gets the glory? Man, he's such a happy guy. He's such a successful guy. He seems so at peace. He has joy. Why is that? Because he follows the precepts of the Creator. It always points back to God. Always. Because if it's prideful, then you don't meet these things. Because it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The humble is the one that looks at the Scripture and says, oh, I want a blameless walk. I want to speak truth. I don't want to slander. I don't want to do my neighbor wrong. I don't want to slur my fellow man. I despise the vile man. I honor those who fear the Lord. Those are the Scriptures that I look at and I go, oh, I need to be more like that. I need to acknowledge God in all my ways. And we do that and we see that in that, that, that Psalm, what was it, Psalm 61? 16, I just flip over a page here. We do that, and it says, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. I will not be shaken. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, and I have a delightful inheritance. Those are the boundaries that we get by constantly acknowledging God in all of our ways. I looked at some different Bible characters, obviously, who have struggled uh, and had hard times because I do believe, I don't mean to be the Debbie Downer here, but I do believe there's going to be pain at the pump, and I do believe food's going to be more expensive, and I believe that jobs are going to slowly go down. I think we're in this amazing time right now, but I do think that the, the current state of affairs in our society and our government, I think times either, maybe, maybe I'm completely off, but I think times are going to get tougher uh, for Americans. Um, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, um, but I do think that it's going to happen. And I, I'm looking at I'm looking at some of these passages, and I'm looking at these, these these characters in the Bible, and I go, well, who who had the hard times? 
Was it Mo Moses had some hard times? Um, Job had some hard times. Naomi, Ruth, Peter, Paul, mother of Mary, or mother of Jesus, Mary. I mean, we, I mean, we have a lot of examples to go by in Hebrews 11 of people that had very, very difficult times. And I'm not talking about they wrote your name wrong on the edge of a cup. I'm talking about genuinely difficult, faith-testing times. And it's possible that in our lifetime, we as a church body will experience that. It's possible. It's possible that there are brothers and sisters in this church body that don't have money for food. It's possible. I'm not saying it's probable. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm saying it's possible that that could happen. And what I understand from Scripture is that in all your ways acknowledge Him. Moses did that when the, we went through the plagues and then the Passover and then they crossed the sea. And they, they cross and they sing a big song about Him and, and Miriam sings a song and, and I think it was Aaron, Aaron uh, Moses and the other Israelites were singing the song and they sang it to the Lord and then at the end of the song, they all, when Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea back over them. The Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam, the prophetess Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. Okay, I've been preaching for the last 25 minutes or so, and I'm thirsty. Okay, I want some water. I'm not asking anybody to get me water. I can wait. But what I'm saying is, it's only been 25 minutes in an air-conditioned building with some water through the swamp cooler. There's moisture in the air. And these... Men and women and children went three days through the desert without water. Again, we got it pretty easy here when you look at what they dealt with. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That's why the place is called Marah, which means bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made a decree and a law for them, and, said, and there he tested them. He said, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands, and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord God who heals you. Again, Psalm 16. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. They cried out to the Lord, Lord, we need water. And God said, okay, take this piece of wood, throw it in the water, and it's going to taste like really good stuff. 
I'm thinking like coconut water out of the little coconut deals in Costa Rica. That's what I'm picturing it tasted like. Brenda couldn't get enough when we get back for two weeks and she's looking all over town for the coconut water because it's sweet. And God said, I'll take care of you. But they acknowledged God. Moses acknowledged God. So when we go through these tough times, which I think may happen, we need to acknowledge God in all our ways. Acknowledge Him. I'm going to read... uh, one more passage here in Proverbs. Who has communion this morning? Ephron? Okay. In Proverbs chapter 3, starting in verse 1, he says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Listen to, listen to what will win favor and will win you a good name in the sight of not only mankind, but God. Listen to this promise again, okay? Do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your years, your life many years, and bring you prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. When you acknowledge God constantly, you're building upon faith. You're building upon your faithfulness. When you acknowledge His existence, when you acknowledge His providence, you're building upon faithfulness. Write them on your heart, then you will find win favor and a good name in the sight of the Lord. So acknowledge His existence, acknowledge His glory, and acknowledge His life inside of us. You acknowledge His existence in Hebrews, it talks about about what is faith. The definition of faith. The definition of faith, I think many of you know, it says faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And he says, and without faith it is impossible to believe God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. You're acknowledging and believe that he exists. And again, I keep coming back to this. I keep coming back to this biography, and I don't mean to say this is gospel because this was written by a human being that maybe was spirit led, but I don't believe this is to be a divinely provided book. I don't think every jot and tittle here is perfect, but I think historically, when you look at the things uh, of the life of the early forefathers and foremothers, when you look at their life and their and their story and their history, it was a constant constant acknowledging of this is God. This is God. Let's find His ways. Let's make our paths straight. Let's just figure out how to stay within His parameters. And then look what we've come to. We've come to the greatest country in the world. And it's being under some serious, serious attack from people that will not acknowledge God and will not revere His ways. And that's the situation that we're in. So how do we fight it? How do we fight it? We speak up. We stand firm. We don't acquiesce to things that are just wrong. We stand firm on truth. We stand firm on the Word of God. Now, I don't get to speak for the next four weeks here. Maybe some of you are happy about it. Maybe some of you aren't. But either way, I'm going to be gone for four weeks. And we've got uh, some preachers that are going to fill in. I'm looking forward to the family break and the family... uh, 
vacation. I think it's going to be a good time traveling across the country and seeing some different things. But um, my, my hope, my hope is that the church body gets something out of this message today, some sort of inspiration that when the opportunity arises over the next week or day or four weeks or year or whatever, when you have an opportunity to stand stand for truth, stand for God, stand for His Word as it relates to what we're dealing with today, that you speak the truth in love. That you're able to say, hold on a second. Let's look at this from a different perspective. Let's, just, let's look at this from the perspective of maybe this is why those right-wing nuts feel this way. Those religious zealots feel this way. Maybe this is why they feel this way. There's a way to handle it to where you're not the bigot. There's a way to handle it where you can speak the truth and love and say, hey, it's possible the reason why they're so adamant about the right to bear arms or the right to free speech or the right to life, here's why. And if you say it in a way and the Spirit leads you, I believe the Spirit will lead people to go, well, maybe they're not so far off. Maybe they're not as crazy as what I'm thinking they are. And then you're just making a little bit of headway closer to truth. And I think all that comes down to it gives us an opportunity to give glory to God. It gives us an opportunity to take politics into religion, which are the two of the three things that you're not supposed to talk about with people, which I think is baloney. Politics, religion, and finances. Let's discuss it. How do we get better? How do we get smarter? How do we... How do we sharpen each other's sword here? Right? But in Acts chapter eight, or 28, my last passage, I'll, I'll, you, I'll say it for Ephraim, you're, you're on, is, uh, this, is uh, this is the end of Paul's life here. The, the last book of, the last chapter of the book of Acts in the last couple of verses, last two verses says, For two whole years Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul did for two years in his own rented house as people came to see him. And it was, he was just bold. He was bold. So I pray for all, you, all of you and I pray for my family and my wife and I that we're just, that we're just bold. And we're just bold for God. We acknowledge God in all our ways and we'll stand up for, for Him. Because we know what we're about to do. He, he stood for us, right? The ultimate sacrifice for us. I'm going to miss you guys. I'm not going to miss everything in Colorado, but I'm going to miss a lot of it. So, uh, Efren?